Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. And Zane Gray was writing off all of his fishing trips, and the IRS didn't like him. You know, Zane Gray said, well, I'm writing books about him. And they said, now nah, you're out on vacation. And so he was in big, big debt. He was in so much debt and spent, wasting so much money because he was a big spender that they were going to go bankrupt, except Dolly had been putting away half of his money to support her and the kids for his entire career, and he didn't know it. And so she bailed him out under one condition, and that was that we incorporate. That was Ed Meyer on the most important person in Zane Gray's crazy life story. Rope and Mountain Lion, Cy Young's Curveball, and the most prolific writer of his time today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash deddy to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash deddy, D-E-T-T-E, to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. Hey, how are you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. One quick way to dig deeper and follow this show is to head over to Instagram. If you're on Instagram and want to check out wetflyswing.com, uh, on Instagram and follow us. That would be helpful, and you can get a chance to uh, to dig a little deeper with the show. Smitty's Fly Box delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's subscription fly box. Smitty's has been producing high quality flies and materials for over thirty years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly tie materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. Ed Meyer takes us on a wild ride into the life of one of the greatest writers of his time. We discover how Zane Grey created some of the greatest Western uh, novels and movies of the time. We talk about this, hundreds of movies were created, um, and uh, we find out what his connection to Teddy Roosevelt was, and also his connection to my great uncle. We dig into the Rogue River today, it's a fun one. Plus we get quite a bit into fishing. Uh, Zane, that was a big part of his life. If you don't know about Zane Gray, you gotta check this one out, this is gonna be a fun one. Here we go. Ed Meyer from the Zane Gray Society. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing great, Dave. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on here and putting some time uh, together today to dig into, uh, you know, a famous person, not only during in his time, but I mean, I've known about Zane Gray, you know, his writings and, you know, his fishing and, you know, the Rogue River is a river that I, I'm aware of that he's fished. And uh, we're going to talk a little about just like his life here so people understand who he is, but maybe... Um, Maybe let's start back to you. So how did the Zane Gray's West Society, how did you get involved in this society? Well, actually, my wife bought me his whole 72 uh, book collection of Western stories, and I read them all over a year and decided I ought to learn a little bit more. So I found out about Zane Gray's West Society and attended one of their conventions at Mormon Lake, Arizona. Oh, wow. There you go. And then, And now what is your current role with the society? I'm the archivist. I used to be the vice president. But I'm committed to getting information to people, not just um, by reading the books, but so that you can go on the Internet and learn more. And so I'm working on putting content on the Internet. Okay, perfect. And yeah, and we're going to I want to hear about his life because it's pretty interesting. I mean, he he was, uh, I think, born in the late 1800s. He, you know, became a very wealthy person. Right? I think back in the time, the early 1900s, he was making, you know, like half a million dollars or something like that. Right. Just through his movies and books. So. He was maybe, was he at the time the biggest author in the United States? Actually, he was the biggest author in the world. Oh, wow. The only things that were more published were the Bible and the McGruffy readers. That's in those days, that's what they put in all the pioneer schoolhouses. Oh, wow. Right. So he was huge. Yeah. And so he was this famous person. I mean, I, and I know a little bit about the history, but maybe, maybe let's start with, you know, from the top a little bit here and talk about 
you know, because we're going to talk about some of his movies and things like that, but we're going to jump around a little bit too. So we have a lot of people interested in fly fishing here. Talk about that. How did he get into like fly fishing? And maybe we start with fishing, but how did that fishing thing come to be? Well, he, he was raised along the Delaware River. Actually, he was raised in Zanesville, Ohio, but moved to uh, Lackawaxon, Pennsylvania on the Delaware River. And his first fly fishing was actually done on the Delaware River, and that would have been uh, about 1880. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, on the Delaware, he was fly fishing. Was that his... He had some mentors along the way. I can't remember one of the guy's name. I think it was Muddy Muddy Miser, right? Or Do you remember that name? Yeah, Muddy Miser lived in the poorhouse, and he went down to the river to catch fish. Uh, they were bait fishing at the time. He wasn't fly fishing yet, but they were bait fishing, and he'd catch, old, old Muddy Miser would catch fish and sell them in the town to raise a little bit of money. Uh, Zane Gray's parents didn't like him fishing with this old poor man, but he did anyway. Right. So what does that tell us about Zane, the fact that he was down there fishing with this poor guy when people were making fun of the poor guy his parents didn't want him what what was it about zane that made him feel like he wanted to do that well i don't think it was because he was any kind of necessarily a wonderful person he just wanted to learn how to fish he loved oh, to fish. <laughs> right he loved to fish and uh um he loved to play baseball and eventually he liked to write but his dad didn't really like him writing and he didn't like him fishing and of course that made him want to fish all the more oh gotcha so so he had a love of fishing early on and and then, uh, and I know his, his dad, so his dad was an influence right on him. And I think he even got into maybe dentistry for a little bit, but, um, but really well, when was the time when he went from, maybe he didn't know his track to where he realized, Hey, I'm, I'm this writer. I, writer's going to, writing's going to be my thing. Well, he wasn't a very good writer, but he started dating a much younger woman in 1900 became his wife, Dolly Gray. And she was going to college and uh, an English and teaching major. And she was convinced that he was a good writer, so she basically took you under her wings and taught him how to write. Oh, wow. So that's how it happened. Yeah, so Dolly. So it's really interesting because, I mean, we've all got, um, you know, vices and things we do in life. I mean, it was interesting because with Zane, I think Dolly was with him with through his whole life, right? And she was a big influence on him. But he also had lots of other partners, like women, right? But she still stuck with him. Why, why was it that do you think Dolly stuck with Zane over all, all those years? Well, I, I think she loved him and he loved her, but you need to realize this is around the, the turn of the century, and this is a man who became one of the wealthiest writers in the world. He was the wealthiest writer in the world. So your choice is to get vo divorced and leave this man with three children or um, to make it go. And so she basically ended up running his entire business while he was off um, cavorting around the world fishing, largely fishing, and uh uh, taking his assistants, he would call them his assistant or his secretary uh, with him. Right. Right. Yeah. That is, uh, I mean, in this day and age, it seems a little, a little crazy, but yeah, back then I'm trying to think that I'm, I'm sure there's many other famous writers that, that had a similar life, you know, style and obviously, but, um, okay. So that's it. So Dolly was this huge, very important person to him, you know, obviously the business, the writing, so when did the fishing get to a point where, you know, he was traveling? I mean, he bought multiple boats throughout his life and, and these giant boats and stuff. When did uh, it become this sport fishing? When did that happen where he's traveling around and, and, you know, around the world fishing for these giant fish? It started around 1910 where he was really traveling. He was traveling initially to Florida and then he went to California. And then in, in the 20s, he started traveling around the world. Okay. So the 20s. And he, I'm just thinking about his life. He died... I want to say he was mid-60s, right? Was it in the 30s, or when, when did he pass away? Oh, no, it was much earlier. He died in 1939. Oh, 39. Yeah, and it was at home with his uh, with his wife, and the last words he said were, were Dolly. No kidding. Oh, and, and, and she recorded in her uh, diary, uh, Zane Gray gone fishing. Right, right, there you go. So 1939, the year actually my dad was born in 1939, so that's an interesting year, and so I have a little bit of a connection to Zane Gray, and this is kind of what got me going. I've known about Zane. Well, I want to talk about his movies too, but my uh, so the connection, this is interesting. You probably don't know about this at all. I'm sure Zane never wrote about it, but he was a famous Rogue River you know, person that was out. He loved, or he did, did at least a few trips to the Rogue. Uh, my uncle, um, who was a kind of a famous guy in the, uh, in the Navy who fought in World War II, or my great uncle, so my grandma's brother, 
his dad was kind of lost his house and stuff and ended up moving down to the Rogue River for two years and living off the on the Rogue River like gold panning. And so my uncle, Jack, before he went into the Navy and became a famous Navy officer, lived on the Rogue. And it was a very influential period of his life because he learned about, right, living, you're living on the river, you're living on gold. He met, they met Zane Gray down there on the Rogue. And he tells a story about that. Talk about that, like the Rogue River to Zane. Like, what do you know that story of? Because it's this pretty, like he had these boats, there's white water. What, what, why did, how did he get to the Rogue and what happened there? Well, this is only my opinion. He'd been traveling all over the world, fishing and having a good time with his brother who went with him all the time, his brother RC, who ended up being a professional baseball player. But later in life, I think he felt a little guilt conscious and decided to come home and go in someplace a little closer that he could take his family. And he not only fished the Rogue River, he also fished the Umpqua River in Oregon, and he built a cabin that's still there on the Rogue River. It's run by the National Forest Service. That's right. That's And that's the same great. So he built a cabin just to be, what, was that a place that he was at regularly, or did he stay there for a long period of time? He was there for several years. He wrote so much about the Rogue River that it started getting too many fishermen on it. And he didn't like other people competing with him for fishing, so he uh, relocated his camp over to the Umpqua River. Oh, wow. So there you go. So so he starts on the Rogue, so he makes it, he blows it up because he's this famous writer. And uh, and then he moves over, I think it's, was it the North Umpqua I think he was on? Yes, it is the North Umpqua, that's correct. Yeah, so he hits the North Umpqua, and then does he not write when he's on the North Umpqua? He wrote one article, uh, nothing that was heavily published, but one article, I think the original version was called North Umpqua. Oh, North Umpqua. And, and then what did he write on the Rogue that we that would be out there that people can take a look at? Was it articles for magazines or was it books? Actually, I have a whole website ded- dedicated to uh, Zangray and fly fishing at our at, at Zangray West Society archives. If someone wants to look at that, we have one on all of his fly fishing that's there. He had a whole entourage that went with him, including girlfriends. He'd take his family there, but have his girlfriends there as well. But his brother and his children, and uh, they fished everywhere. They ran the river. He was uh, pretty well known uh, as a canoeist. And so um, he was just a pretty active gentleman. Right. So he ran the river, and he ran the rivers in these uh, these drift boats. Or they weren't drift boats at the time, but they were the precursor to drift boats, right? They ran them in wooden boats that were had flared-up bows and sterns. Did, and there was a situation where I think he, he dumped. What was that like? Do you remember that story where he dumped in the Rogue? Well, he, actually, he dumped in the Rogue several times. They ran the rivers all the time. There's a film that you can find, if you look around on the Internet, of him actually um, running the boats through the rapids on the Rogue River. Oh, no kidding. God, I wonder what that one's called, like just Zane Gray, Ro- Rogue River um, boating or something like that. Right. I, the biggest novel, by the way, that he wrote about it was Rogue River Feud. But um, he also wrote a, a fishing book called um, uh, Freshwater Fishing that covers all of his freshwater fishing adventures, um, both in the United States and also um, uh, around the world. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote considerably. And fly fishing was, I mean, he did as much fly fishing. Uh, well, I guess when he's on the road, he was fly fishing for the most part. And was he, what was his fly fishing like other than Oregon? Was he fishing around the country? Well, around the country, he fished um, Flat Top Mountain in Colorado. He was fly fishing for cutthroat trout there. He fished in Glacier National Park for rainbow, rainbow trout at um, Swift Current Reservoir. And he also fished for uh, black bass down on the Shark River in Florida. Wow. Okay. So he pretty much, yeah, he pretty much did did it all. And including, I mean, what made him famous. What do you think was the thing that really made him this next level famous? I mean, when did his books, because eventually the books became movies, uh, I mean, what, what what was that like? Was that just something that he had always planned on or just kind of happened? Well, Zingri's biggest success initially were in um, magazines around the country. He'd write articles and a lot of articles, many, many articles, like dozens of articles that were published in magazines around the country. Uh, they loved at that time anything that had to do with the outdoors. And, um, and so he really became famous as much for his fishing as well as for his uh for his Western novels. And, and also I mentioned them in the United States. He fished in Newfoundland and uh, New Zealand and Tahiti as well. Yeah. He's all around. Yeah. So it was those Western novel, basically what he did 
was he traveled, yeah, he traveled the West, and then he wrote these novels, essentially kind of hitting on some of his life. You know, the characters were some of the, you know, it came from obviously his travels. What was, so what were some of the top books if somebody wanted to go take a look? Or right now, the movies, I'm assuming, are a little bit older, but, you know, the books, are, are they still out there? Can you still get a hold of some of those? Yeah, he's still one of the, the uh, obviously his style's a little more archaic because he wrote during a time when you didn't have this, gratification first mentality that we have now so he's very descriptive but his most famous book and his most famous uh movie which was made three times was writers of the purple sage writers of the purple sage which was about what what is that about it's actually about a um a young woman whose father has died his father was a polygamist and uh after he died all of the uh other gentleman in the community it was a very remote community he wanted her to marry him so they could get a hold of her 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 ranch and she didn't want to marry them she had a uh gentile a non-mormon that she was um hanging out with and they were going to beat him and run him out of the community before a gunman named lassiter shows up and uh and the love story goes on from there right so lassiter that's what interesting i love this because the characters because there's you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, stuff in there, which kind of similar to his life, right? Some of it, you know, like Lassiter, you had the Mormons, which, you know, polygamy, right? A lot of this stuff he kind of delved into. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Did, did he, did he, why did he write that? Is that something he wanted to share with the world? Like, you know, why do you think he went into those things when he was actually doing those same things himself? Well, at the time that he wrote those novels, Congress was refusing to seat actually the Senate, Utah's first senator, because they felt he'd been a polygamist, and he hadn't. But people were trying to get him to write anti-Mormon stories. And it's not that he didn't like the uh, Mormon people, but he hated polygamy. What he hated the most was organized religion in general. And he was rebelling against his father, who had been a Methodist lay minister, and he loved the religion of the Native American people. So he was really reflecting some of his beliefs on religion, as well as um, I kind of consider his books to be kind of like the old Harlequin romance books. They were a little titillating in a very gentle sort of way. Right, right. Yeah. So they were a little bit different. Like there was nothing at the time out there that was diving into these topics, which were pretty, you know, at the time, they, these were pretty, um, well, obviously people were interested. Like, is that kind of what it was? There wasn't a lot of stuff like this out there. Well, there had been a lot of dime novels during the 1800s that were kind of like things you didn't, you, that the boys would read and the moms didn't like them reading them. Owen Wister was the first really well known. The Virginian was his novel, but it was pretty stilted. Zane Gray is known as the founder of the Western romance novel. And because of that, he was very famous, not just with boys and men, but with women and teenage girls as well. Right. Wow. So he appealed to kind of like everybody, like people were a lot of, well, the, still the most of the country was back East. So people were like, wow, what's this West like? So they would read Zane Gray's novels and they, they, they get a taste of the West. That's right. And he painted word pictures. He, he wrote beautifully. And so they'd read the words and that would paint a picture of what the West was. And he also wrote about exotic things like, um, like Indian battles and cowboys and robbers and, and things that were pretty excited to uh, people who might be in another area. Right. So what was it like back then when he was traveling out West in the early 1900s? You know, bring us back there. What was what was the West? I mean, he was, what was it like back then? Was it, it I'm just trying to think now, it was Cowboys and Indians. What, what was going on? Well, it was at the end. There were still lots of ranchers around, but the Indians were pretty much all on reservations by then. But but they would still roam the countryside. And he uh, has some adventures with some murderous uh, Indians at times. He spent a lot of time in the Four Corners area, and especially in the area around Rainbow Bridge National Monument. Uh, he traveled in there. Right now you can go by boat, but but he traveled in there overland with a uh, fairly famous man named uh, John Witherall, who was a uh, ran a trading post. And he, he took, I believe, uh, three, maybe four trips in into there all across the, that wild country to take him several days in and several days out uh, by horse. Later, when the roads started opening up to the parks and there were dirt roads, he'd take roads in as far as he could and then take horse from there. 
take horses, right? So he was just kind of exploring, and he also did some trips into the Grand Canyon, right? Was that another big uh, thing he was up to? Yeah, his first books were in the Grand Canyon. He went there in 1907 and again in 1908 with a, um, a an old buffalo hunter uh, called Buffalo Jones, who was trying to repent and raise a new crossbreed of buffalo in the Grand Canyon. So he went there with them to actually to document Buffalo Jones roping mountain lions that he would then sell to circuses. Oh, wow. Roping mountain lions. Yeah, well, one of his early, more factual basis books is called Roping uh, Mountain Roping uh, Lions in the Grand Canyon. Roping lion, and how do you? That seems crazy to me. How how do you? Do you know how the guy was roping mountain lions in the Grand Canyon? Oh yeah, we have photos. I actually have a I actually have a letter with a photo that uh, Zangray sent to his brother explaining what they were doing. Uh, they used dogs, and they'd run the mountain lions up the trees, and then the um, Buffalo Jones usually would climb the tree with a, a loop of rope on a long stick and put it over the um, lion's head and then jump out of the tree and drag the lion down and they'd stretch him out and Damn. and pack him out on uh, mules. Wow. Yeah, this is crazy. So they're, they're like literally a mountain lion. They're roping a mountain lion. This is intense. So that was the thing back then, right? This is the Zane Gray's time, right? I mean, was Zane Gray a pretty burly, tough guy himself? He wasn't big, but he was he was burly. I, I mentioned that his brother played uh, professional baseball, not much at the top level, but he re- replaced Honus Wagner during a Pittsburgh Pirates game uh, one time. But Zane Gray also was a great baseball player. He wasn't tall, but he was very strong, very athletic. And his fame was as a pitcher. But what happened is that Cy Young in those days was such a great pitcher that they actually moved the pitcher's mound back to give the batters more of a chance. Oh, wow. And Zangray's curveball then would break early, which meant that all of a sudden people could see it coming and they'd hit it. So he he never made it past the uh, the minor league level, which is one reason that he, uh, he went from the adventures of playing baseball uh, to the adventures of fishing. Wow. So, yeah, so he was on track. He probably thought he was going to be a professional baseball player at some point. Yeah, absolutely. He um he was forced to go to dentistry school at the University of Pennsylvania. His dad had him out pulling teeth. All the pretty girls on the road would go out to have their teeth pulled so they could flirt with Zane Gray. But the the other dentists found out and they forced Zane Gray to go to to go to college. Well, when he got there, he wanted to play baseball and was going to the first practice to try out. And these upperclassmen who were on the baseball team were upset at him for trying to upstage them. So they were chasing him, and he picked up a potato and hit one of them right in the forehead and knocked him out. Well, the baseball coach was there, and he said, I want you on my team. There you go. So he played for the University of Pennsylvania? He did. He did. And then he played for a number of minor league teams. And then there are a lot of just pickup games because in those days, every town had their baseball team. So he'd go from team to team, sneaking in as a ringer because he threw this curveball, and sometimes he'd get chased out of town. So back then, those teams he was on, this is before. So in the major leagues, they moved the mound back, but in these other leagues, they were still, they had the normal distance. Oh, no, no, they moved them all. When they moved to the major leagues, they moved all of them back there, but this was before he had an opportunity to play in the major leagues. He was invited in 1905, I believe it is, to play for what became the Boston Red Sox. But by then, he was hooking up with Dolly, writing books and fishing, and he was fairly old at that time. He was born in 1872, so he decided writing was uh, probably a better direction for him. Yeah, right, and that was a good choice for him. That's right. So baseball, and uh, we actually hear that a lot. It's interesting with the professional sports. We've had a lot of interviews on here with people that are famous fly anglers, and they have a connection to like professional sports or had, you know, they were on track. So I think it's just the, maybe the physical, you know, whatever it is, but um but the pulling teeth story is a really interesting one, too, because back in the time, you know, I guess that's what happened. Yeah, you had to get your teeth pulled, and, and he, I think he went, I think there was, there was a story, he pulled 26 teeth out of some lady's um, mouth, and then everybody, after that point, he was like this master at pulling teeth. Is that kind of how it worked? You know, that's, that's kind of fun, because I, um, that's a story I haven't heard before. So good, I'll look at it, I'll look it up, we, we, can, we can add to it. Yeah, that one might be made up, I don't know, but I, yeah, I heard something about that where... 
he went in and he pulled uh, 26 teeth. Well, he started with one. Or he went there. His dad told him, like, hey, go pull out one tooth. But when he got there, he had to pull out all of them. And he, and he started pulling out one. He's like, he just filled her mouth with cocaine. It came out really easy. And then he basically said, hey, you know what? That was easy. I can just, yeah, I'll, I'll pull. And he pulled them all out. And she was stoked. And then the word got around that he was this, this dentist. But, yeah, the, the dentist, uh, the, the community, right, the dental um group got back and said hey you don't have this you don't have the uh the schooling so you're out of here right yeah although that's true he didn't like dentistry at all it was very boring to him although dolly uh, called him doc that was her nickname for him for his entire life was doc oh it was doc yeah 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 that's right right on nice and and so baseball that is another interesting story with cy young right the probably the most famous definitely one of the most famous baseball in history um, so they change and it's, you know, baseball is a cool sport because they're always reinventing, right. Changing. And even now, right. Baseball, they're speeding up the game because a new, I think the it's, it became too slow for a lot of people, but so the mound was moved back. He had this curveball that used to break perfectly. And so, but now it, you know, once he realized it wouldn't break, right. I mean, what happened there? Was it just, um, you, you would think he can, up, he could change that a little bit and maybe change his curveball, but not the case just wasn't that good. I think he was doing a lot of things at that time. And uh, baseball, remember, wasn't a very high-paying thing at that time. I think he probably thought he had better options elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Perfect. Okay. And so, you know, on the writing, who, like, as he gets into this, so Dolly was obviously a big mentor. Were there other writers that he was following at the time that he really kind of looked at as, as inspiration? You know, I have a whole list of those, and they don't come to mind right now. But he, he he read a number of books. Most of them were outdoor books. So he was certainly inspired. He read books, and in his own diary, he would try to replicate their style of writing until he got it down correctly, because I mentioned he was not a uh, an educated, uh, good writer initially. Right. Yeah, he wasn't. And what was, I'm trying to think now, when was, um, what was Hemingway's era? When was he born? Born, yeah, similar era. Well, he was a little bit younger. That's right. So so Hemingway was around, was he, a little bit? Yeah, he was, and they communicated. Um, Later on during the Depression, Hemingway was coming up, and Zane Gray just about went broke because of his yachts. He had a a second yacht that he had purchased, and it was just going to break him. And he tried to convince Ernest Hemingway to go on a fishing trip with them and to do a movie of it. But Hemingway wasn't impressed, but there's a lot of thought, and I know that Zane Gray believed this, that Hemingway's uh, The Old Man in the Sea was actually stolen from one of Zane Gray's actual fishing adventures. Oh, really? Is that, that was the thought? Yeah, yeah, it was. He had the exact same experience of bringing in a, a, a big, um, I think it would be a sailfish that was eaten by the sharks on the way in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because he had that, whatever it was, a thousand pound sailfish that. Yeah, he, he had, I think it's 13 uh, fishing records. He was, although he fished for little fish, I mean, the fish he was fishing for in, um, in Tahiti was a little fish called the NATO that was just like a little six inch bass. It was like pearl white bass. And he was fishing that with that with a two and a half ounce rod, little bitty flies, but he wanted world records. And so that's what he went after. We're the biggest in the world. I think he held like 13 at one time. He did. He did. Right. So he was, that was his thing. The big, the big fish and, and the big boats, right? He had a boat. What was his biggest boat? The one that almost put him down was it was like over a hundred feet, right? It was this giant. Yeah, he, was had one, he had one called the fisherman and another one called fisherman two. And they're both uh, converted. Other people owned them. And the um, fisherman two just didn't ride right in the water. It wasn't a very good boat at all. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Was that the one with the massive, like three giant sails and all that stuff? Well, they both were. Well, that that was the biggest. That was the biggest of his ships. He ended up basically abandoning it. It ended up being sold to some plantation owner or someone like that over in Tahiti. Gotcha. Wow, this is interesting. Yeah. So he had this this life of uh, yeah. I mean, but he loved you know the fishing, the outdoors. Did he also get into other you know like hunting and other types of things like that? A little bit. Well, he had it all the time. He had it a lot of in a lot in Arizona, up in the Payson, Arizona area. He had a cabin up there as well, and he went there largely to hunt for bear. And he didn't get a bear until his last year. He hunted up there for ten years, and he couldn't get a bear. 
I mean, this school kid shot a bear half a mile from his cabin, but he couldn't get one <laughs> until the last year. But he shot deer and he shot turkey and, um, and in general had a pretty good time. How similar do you think is, uh, is Zane, uh, Zane's writing to Hemingway's? Like just the style. Because I hear a lot of people talk about, we've had a lot of famous writers, you know, um, in the fly fishing space and outdoor space that have talked about Hemingway, uh, the influence of Hemingway. But you don't hear as much about Zane Gray. Do you think they were similar? Well, Zane Gray was a better fisherman than Hemingway. Was he? I can that for sure. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, how many world records does Hemingway have? I don't know if he ever had any. But Hemingway was a technically a better writer, in my opinion. Again, Zane Gray rate, uh, wrote in the early 20th century. And so he was writing basically soap operas about the West and, uh, and descriptive novels about the West. And if you read them now, if you're into that, you love them. But Hemingway is a much more, um, I guess you say artistic, a writer. Yeah. Artistic. Right. Right. And, but they did have similarities in the type of at the time, because Hemingway was writing some stuff, you know, for bad, good and bad reviews, but it was some pretty, hard-hitting stuff, right? I mean, about kind of similar to Zane, right? Where he was writing about some of these things going on with, um, you know, in the Mormon community and polygamy. I mean, and Zane, and actually Hemingway had the same thing. I think he had lots of women, right? And wives. And so it's this interesting, you know, overlap. I guess from a innocent bystander, you look at these famous people and you're like, wow, that was, that was quite, you know, a different life. One of the big differences is Hemingway wrote more biting stuff. Whereas um, Zane Gray's book for more adventures, Hemingway was an alcoholic. Yeah, he was. Zane Gray was a teetotaler and never drank. Oh, really? No, never drank. That's amazing. So, what was his? What were some of Hemi or some of uh, Zane's vices? Women. Yeah, <laughs> other than women, what did he have? Any other ones? Uh, you know, he didn't have too many vices. Not the not that I can see. He was um, he was pretty moody. He was manic depressive for sure. Some of his books reflect uh, reflect that. But um, and so he'd go into dark moods, and often people would find him. I don't know what your people on the Rogue River thought him. That you know your relative thought, but he was known to be pretty stilted. He'd be in his own thoughts, and if people asking questions, sometimes he'd just brush them off or not respond at all. Right. 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 Yeah, I don't remember exactly. I think it, it was actually, I mean, at that time, I don't remember the exact year, but um, yeah, I think Zane was a famous person. So I think it was a good experience running into him on the river. So, you know, maybe he was different when he got on the river too, right? He could have found, got out of his manic or got into the good groove, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He talked, he bragged to anybody. He loved to brag. He'd land on the piers when he's deep sea, sea fishing and, and announce over a megaphone, you know, Zane Gray, thousand pound swordfish. <laughs> You know, all, right. all those kinds of things. On the Rogue River, he had a um, an Asian cook, uh, George Takahashi, who may have been a better fisherman than Zane Gray, but he'd send him ahead of him down the river to clear anybody out of the pool so he had all the fishing holes to himself. Oh, wow. Was the Rogue, was he fishing for, um, you know, was, was steelhead? I mean, they had the, the half-pounders, or was it just whatever? Did he have certain species, or did he just catching whatever's there? He was he primarily uh, fished for uh, steelhead. He started out being a fairly lousy. the the lo The local the old timers on the river taught him how to fly fish. Really, how to, how to really fly fish pretty well. He started with a um, a seven ounce rod that he was really proud of. I don't know if you've heard of a um, a cosmic rod. No, actually, it was an eight ounce rod. And they convinced him over time to move down. He ended up fishing there with a five-ounce Leonard rod. Oh, Leonard. Yeah, bamboo. And and he ended up casting maybe 60 feet. So, right. you know, he, he he was okay. And he and he fished, all, he fished pretty well, but he wasn't the best in his group. Although, if you read his book, you'd certainly think he was. Today's episode is presented by Jackson Hole Fly Company. Jackson Hole Fly Company is a new kind of online fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high-quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over 1,000 fly patterns. Right now, you can get 25% off your first order. Go to jhflyco.com swing to get started today. That's jhflyco.com swing. And on that cabin on the Rogue, is that that's kind of the only structure cabin in there? Because that's a wild and scenic section. That's the 
the section, there's a lot of white water in there. It's hard to get to unless you've got some skills behind the oars. Was he running? What's the big one? Rainy Falls, right? Was he going, were they going over Rainy Falls? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did. Well, no, no, no. They, they portaged around that one. I think, I don't think they went over that. That's right. Cause that one's mine, but Blossom Bar, I can't remember. Cause eventually Blossom Bar, I mean, now I think they blew away with some dynamite to make it. It's still a really tricky rapid. It's really, I've been through it and it's one of the, one of the trickiest rapids I've ever been through in a drift boat. But, um, back then I think it was probably even harder, right? I mean, did they just, dump, they must've just been dumping boats left and right through that rapid. Oh, I'm sure they were. His, his son, uh, Romer was running with him too. Romer considered himself to be a filmmaker. And so he w- took a lot of the films himself. Uh, Zane Gray often would stand up when he was running the rapids. Oh, he would. Yeah. Do you know much about these boats that they made or they used uh, on the river? No, I don't. That that's not my that's not my cup of tea. I'll look into it. I, we've got a series. We did a series on uh, like the history of drift boats, and I know we talked about it. It's pretty cool because this part of the you know Oregon is where drift boats essentially started, and I'm sure Zane Gray probably had some part of that since he was way way back in the day. Um, but but you got Romer, his son. You got RC. Who did RC tragically pass away? Talk about that when he died because that was a big impact on Zane, right? He was just younger. I mean, they were. Romer and Zane Gray were just anchored at the hip for their whole life. I mean, Romer, although he played baseball, he married a a rich woman from uh, uh, from New York, and basically they funded everything for Zane Gray early. They and Dolly, Dolly had an an inheritance too, and so they funded Zane Gray for for years. When they moved from New York down to Lackawaxon, Pennsylvania, they funded him building a home. Uh, Zane building a home down there. So they, they were together and, um, and Romer died early. And I think that's part of the reason. And when I say Romer, that's RC gray is Romer gray and his son is Romer gray too. But I believe that's part of the reason that they ended up going to Oregon as well is that he didn't have his fishing buddy. He also had a guy named captain Lori Mitchell from Nova Scotia who uh, fished with him for years as well. Okay. Yeah. So he had these connections around. Did he, when, when he traveled out around up into Canada and things like that, I mean, where, how did he, how did he decide on his next journey? What, what do you think? What was that? You know, how did he know where he was going next? Well, he was well known enough that people would contact him. Lori Mitchell, Captain Lori Mitchell was a, uh, a guide in Nova Scotia and he contacted his angry and encouraged him to come up there fishing for tuna. And so Zane Gray caught a 700, I think 58 pound tuna world record at the time up there. And while they were there, Mitchell said, boy, you might want to try to catch some Atlantic salmon. And so they went up at least to the, uh, to the Medway river and they had heard about Nova Scotia. And so they came back later in 1929 and, uh, fished in Nova Scotia. We have an entire, um, exhibit on, on that that's online as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So the exhibit online, how does, if people are listening now and they want to dig more into Zane Gray, some of these, maybe some of the fly fishing or what you're talking about here, they go to the Facebook group? Well, the easiest place for that stuff is actually you'll do archives. All you have to do is type in Zane Gray West Society archives, and it'll open all of our online archives. And there's a button that says exhibits, and there'll be all kinds of stories. There's one on fly fishing, and there's also one on um, on Newfoundland that I recommend. Oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, featured collection, feature exhibit. You got uh, Tom Mix and Zane Gray's Silent Westerns, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff here. Browse items. Yeah, this is cool. So this is part of, yeah, this is the, this is connected to the, well, the Facebook group is where people can go and kind of chat. What's that look like in the group? Because Facebook groups are not always easy to um to get rolling is there a lot of conversation in there what's that look like are you getting new people coming in or or how does this look as as you move through time our facebook site is our is our most successful site we'll get up to in in the social media world this isn't huge but we'll have up to say three thousand four thousand people coming in at any one time to look at a to look at an at an article and if you think about it we're we're trying to get younger people to read zane gray which is why we're doing stuff online but Facebook is more popular with middle age and older age people, and those are the people with whom uh, Zane Gray's uh, um, very popular. Uh, veterans, we we have we give books to veterans' homes because the veterans still love them. Right? Oh, they do. Okay. 
Yeah, they would take Jane Grey novels. They had pocket novels that they take into World War II with them. Right. So, yeah, this is great. So we got a good resource here so people can dig in and check more into it. And this is awesome. Yeah, you got the Rogue, you got the Umqua. So you guys have really pretty much all... Now, are his writings, like his books, can you get or read the books online? Or can you are you, can you actually purchase still the, the paperback books or anything like that? You can buy paperbacks. You can still buy original old books. Uh, the ones that are worth the more still have the dust covers on, on them. Uh, those where I am able to in that article, I will link to, I'll either include portions of the books, like the one on fly fishing. I actually have segments of the books that I've quoted so people can read, or you can link to the, uh, to the, what's available online as well. Gotcha. How do you reach out when you got, you want to connect with the, the newer generation? How do you guys do that? I mean, it's challenging, right? Because it's like, you know, us, you know, kind of older white guys, right? How do you, how do you do that? Do you have a, a, a plan or, you know, what sort of success have you found there? Well, the biggest problem is we don't know how to do it very well. We do have an Instagram and a Twitter page, uh, but we're not, you know, we're using hashtags and we're doing everything we can, but we're struggling getting uh, much, much of a following. I mean, I, I even did a primer on some of Zane Gray's stories that were better for, for young people. And we uh, tried it in at least one, well, just one school and, and the young people loved it. So, but we're trying every way we can get to a younger generation. We're hoping that the people that are members, we have roughly 400 members, will uh, send books to their children and their grandchildren or bring them to the events. Right. Right. It's interesting because if you think about I think about this sometimes with the podcast, not that I'm comparing myself to uh, Zane Gray or, or anything like that, but... You know, we've got this huge, you know, one of the largest fly fishing podcasts with uh, we're, we're going to hit 500 interviews this year uh, with different people right around. And I think of like, OK, this is amazing. It's this great resource. But what happens when we're gone? You know, do those things live out there? Same thing with Zane Gray. Right. So, you know, what happens, say, in 50 years, 100 years, you know, does does this eventually he's always going to be in the history books, but. You know what I mean? Like, does this stuff fade? Do you not? Are you not able to get a hold of his books? How, how do you guys look at that to keep this? Because again, Facebook could go away tomorrow too, right? I mean, you could Facebook might not be here. Um, you know, if you don't pay your bills on your website, the website goes away. Like, what are your thoughts there on how do you keep this going? Say, if you look out a hundred years. Well, that's why we're uh, doing these online archives. I mean, even if people some some on to them, it's fine. Uh, we even have links. There are. Oh, uh, about 30 different Jane Grey collections all around the world. We have links to those collections so that you can go in and um, some of them have online stuff, but at least you can find out what's in their collections. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is to uh, do some cross-linking. People who may not like old cowboy novels may like the fact that you're dealing with Native Americans or you're you're dealing with environmental issues, any, any number of issues. And so we're trying to cross-link with those, and if we can get anything into education, and that's a struggle because the teachers decide what they want to teach, especially in the universities, but but we're trying to connect with people who may be around and provide sources that might be around uh, beyond our lifetime. Yeah, I like that. I think that's the right way to go is to go through the education system, right? That should be a part where you're actually reaching out because, yeah, he's, he's, he's a major player in the history of the u.s right i mean you know it's so it would make sense that the history whatever writers you would you would talk about him in school um what was his native american connection you know back in the day how, what was his it sounds like he had a love for some of the indigenous people how did that begin and there's an exhibit on there called zane gray and arizona's tribes i think it's largely well it's largely because his, his connections with john weatherall on the novel reservation and so he really had some firsthand knowledge of the legends of the Native American people. Uh, his most famous book about Native American people was The Vanishing American, which is out an, about an actual murder on the Navajo Reservation where a uh, Navajo father refused to let his daughter attend the, um, uh, the school set up by the Bureau of Land, or by the, I'm sorry, by Indian Affairs on the reservation. So um, some bad folks sent out people to rough him up and kill him, and so they killed the guy, and Zane Gray wrote a novel surrounding that. Oh, wow. But 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 he, he dealt with the Navajo. He dealt with the Paiute. 
He dealt with the um, the Yaqui Indian tribes. Uh, he dealt with the Hopi. Uh, and he actually came from an Indian heritage. His family were the Zanes, who were in the Ohio River Valley Indian Wars. And one of his um, ancestors married an Indian princess. And so he was very proud that he had Indian blood. Mm. Yeah, he had Indian blood, right. Because because that's interesting. His actual uh, given name was Pearl Zane Gray, right? Was that his original name? Yeah, and Gray was spelled G-R-A-Y. They believe, we believe, and there's some support for that, that Queen Victoria at that time was famous for wearing Pearl Gray clothing. And so he was named after that color, but he thought that the name was pretty um, girlish. So he, he dropped it. Also, his dad lost a bunch of money in some scheme, and they had to move from Zanesville, Ohio, uh, to Cleveland. And I think part of the reason that he changed the spelling from G-R-A-Y to G-R-E-Y was so that people wouldn't come calling to collect their money. All right. <laughs> Jeez, all right. So you got... In Zaneville, Ohio, so that's, uh, and is that, I'm assuming that's still there, a small town out in Ohio? There's a Zane Gray Museum there. That it's called the National Roads Zane Gray Museum, and it's a it's a wonderful museum. We have, uh, there's also a museum at Lackawaxen, Pennsylvania, and one at Payson, uh, Arizona. Oh, wow. And those are the three big museums for Zane around the country? Uh, yes, his, his cabin in, in Payson uh, burned down. And so the community had the building plans for it, so they rebuilt it down in the town so that it wouldn't be vandalized. And so now you can go there and see and feel and touch and learn anything you want to about Zane Gray. Oh, wow. And that cabin uh, on the Rogue was, um, why did they choose that spot? Where I'm trying to think, I, I can't remember where it is. I've been up to it before, but it's a nice, like, flat area. Do you know much about that, about how that came to be, why they chose that specific spot? Yeah, I do. Um Zane Gray didn't like bureaucracy, and the uh, Forest Service was putting him through all kinds of hoop to get a place where he could build at all. Well, he was famous enough now that, that they went to see the president, and the president found a way to loop around it by having him file a mining claim. And so he filed a mining claim on that site, and that's where he, he built the cabin. Right. And so that we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt. Is that this time? Uh, no, this is after Teddy. Oh, after Teddy. Yeah, I believe it was Cleveland. Cleveland. So, but Teddy must have been, I mean, right. It was early part. I'm trying to think, right. He must have been part of his, his, uh, I mean, Teddy was a huge outdoor uh, advocate. One of the things Zane Gray did early in his life is he, he joined a sportsman club in New York City. And um, Teddy Roosevelt belonged to that club baden powell from boy scouts belong belong to it and all the outdoor writers belong to it and so he basically um he did what a lot of folks want to get hooked in do he went where the rich people were he invited them down to lackawaxen to fish and hunt and so that's how he how he met teddy roosevelt that's oh so yeah and he knew teddy or met him at least and knew him a little bit well you know i might also mention I mentioned before Buffalo Jones, who was trying to preserve the buffalo. Well, Buffalo Jones was brought in by Teddy Roosevelt to grow the buffalo herd at um, at Yellowstone. And he did that for a number of years. And so when when um, Buffalo Jones moved down to the area by the grain by um, the Grand Canyon, that had just been uh, designated as a um, as a national monument initially, and um, Buffalo Jones' friend was appointed as the game warden, and that would be a guy named Jimmy Owens. And so, uh, and and of course, Teddy Roosevelt went down there fishing and hunting as well. So there was a lot of connection between Teddy Roosevelt and uh, and Zane Gray, both directly and indirectly. Mm. And this was, you're talking about, this was in Yellowstone. This is the making of Yellowstone National Park. Yes. Right, right, right. Which is really cool because again, I love, this is what I love about the history is that, you know, full circle, we're doing some really cool stuff. We've been doing stuff with shops and, and um, you know, and we're heading out on a trip towards Southeast, you know, Southeastern Idaho, hitting the Henry's Fork and some of those famous rivers here this year. And, you know, you're right there. I mean, Yellowstone 
you know, it, to me, it's right in the middle of the West. You know, it's this, it's probably, I don't know, it seems like it's maybe the most famous, you know, diverse um, park out there. Um, I may be wrong about that, but what's your take on Yellowstone? Is that, was that just one of those places that brought everybody together? Teddy, Zane, kind of everybody of the day? Well, of course, it was early and, and the, uh, the old faithful and all of those things are pretty spectacular. And so, of course, there, uh, Zane Gray also fished, by the way, the Salmon River up in Idaho. When uh, he wrote a book, uh, Thunder River, that was up in that area. And so he fished, uh, fished there as well, a horse trip again. Right. Yeah. So he fished the salmon. So the upper, the upper snake, right? The salmon dumps into the, the snake. Yes. Cool. Yeah. This is, this is really awesome. So, and we've mentioned a, a bunch of books. I so will put links in the show notes to as many of these as we can find. And we'll put links out to the archive as well. Um, any other books that we haven't talked about here? We're going to try to get a list here of, of the ones you talk about today so people can take a look, but anything else you'd throw out there that are kind of books you would recommend people take a look at? Well, the one that made him first famous was called Heritage of the Desert. And that was part of a series of three, Heritage of the Desert, Rise of the Purple Sage, and the Rainbow Trail, which is about Rainbow Bridge, are three that any fan would want to read for sure. Uh, I mentioned The Vanishing American. That's very, very popular. Yes, she has 72 of them. Uh, Black, uh, he has all kinds of novels. 72 novels. Yeah, our, our website, by the way, is zgws, that's for zangrywestsociety.org. And we list all the novels and provide a, a lot of information on there. We provide collecting information for people that might want to collect them. Oh, good. Uh, a lot of history. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yep. Z about Zane Gray writings, the annual convention. Now, what, what's this convention do you have going? Well, every year we have a convention. This year in um, September, it's around the 21st, I believe, we're going to Las Vegas, New Mexico. Really? Yeah, he, he wrote a couple novels about that that area, and so we're going back there. We'll go to the—we're staying in one of the hotels where he stayed when he came in by train. He did a lot of traveling by train, and we just gather there. We have presentations on um, on different aspects of Zane Gray's life and his history. And who will be there? Who will be the people presenting? Like, how many— you know, how many presentations will there be? How many people will be like speaking? This year, not that many, because we're only going to be there for three days. We're usually four days, but we're going down into, um, we're having a pre-trip down to the Rio Dosa, New Mexico area to go over into uh, Billy the Kid country. So we'll probably have six to eight presentations. The keynote isn't really Zane Gray, it's Ann Hillerman, who's the daughter of Tony Hillerman, who's still, um, writing the same genre of novel as Tony Hillman. Okay. Yeah, this is really cool. Yeah, so this is, and I'm looking back now at past convention. I mean, other than COVID in 2020, I mean, you guys go back to 1983. It looks like you haven't missed a single convention. How How is that? Who's been, you know what I mean? That seems pretty amazing that you can go back. How many years is that? Back to 1983. How has this kept going so long? I mean, people like you, obviously, but, um, you know, you know, how, how do you keep this going? Like, how is it not faded? It's just, it seems like you must have a pretty passionate group of people. Uh, we do. It's pretty important to establish relationships, which is why we hold the conventions. The One of the co-founders is a gentleman named Joe Wheeler, who uh, publishes uh, collections of stories, not saying great stories, but just feel-good stories. And he's still with us. He's in his 80s, and so... When you have someone who has spanned all of those years from them, by the way, on our um, archives, we've had under different titles, but we've had, oh, I think eight, maybe nine different publications. We put out a quarterly publication, and you can read all of them, uh, link to all of those and read them in their entirety uh, through our archives. Oh, amazing. And you can search them. Yeah, and you can search them, General Society. Yeah, so you guys have done a good job. I mean, putting this together, you, you found that the convention brings people together. That's important. You keep that passion going, but then you've documented all of his writings online. It looks like, you know, everything's there. And so, um, so yeah, you've got the, you've got a cool community going here, which is awesome to share it out. So hopefully we'll have a few people that'll check in with you. And it looks like you also have a membership. Is that how, how you pay the bills on some of this stuff you have kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we break even, we also have an endowment that people make contributions to, and it's, it's, um, almost to the point where we can be self-sustaining. The membership basically covers the cost of our publications. Right now, 
you can get an online membership. That means you don't get a hard copy of the magazine. You just get a digital copy for 10 bucks a year. Oh, 10 bucks a year. Oh, there you go. Yeah, That's so, easy. Okay. And, and I'll be happy to send you, um, well, you can go onto our website and join. We'd love to have you. Yeah, that's a good deal for sure. And then in that member in that membership, you get a little bit of what you just get a some uh, updates on new things going or what what is in the magazine, the quarterly uh, magazine. They're pretty. Uh, they'll usually be two to three really well developed, well presented historic articles or articles about movies or or any any number of things that you might want to consider. And then obviously there's information about our our upcoming events and happenings in the Zangray world. Okay, perfect. And then. As far as the movies, so back in the day, these were, you know, he was lots of big movies. He was making quite a bit of money selling the rights, right, for the books. What were, you mentioned a few of his movies. Any other movies, or is, I guess, maybe some of the books? Were a lot of his books were movies? Yeah, there are 150 movies. I think more than anyone, uh, author ever. Oh, wow. Uh, There are 150 movies that were made by him. He even had his own film company because he didn't like Tom Mix. He didn't like the stuff they were doing about him, so he formed his own film company for a while and went on location for all of his movies to film these uh first silent films and then talkies uh, eventually he didn't like the movie business so he got out of it but he still sold uh sold rights and um uh, and made a lot of money actually dolly negotiated most of those is off having a good time that's right so at the time when he was making i think it was that something like that like half a million dollars annually um that was, that was a lot of money back then, right? Like it was that was oh, huge. It, it was huge. Although the depression just, the other thing that happened is the IRS. Remember the IRS was pretty early then. And Zane Gray was writing off all of his fishing trips and the IRS didn't like him. You know, Zane Gray said, well, I'm writing books about him. And they said, nah, you're out on vacation. And so he was in big, big debt. He was in so much debt and spent wasting so much money because he was a big spender that they were going to go bankrupt except Dolly had been putting away half of his money to support her and the kids for his entire career, and he didn't know it. Oh, wow. No kidding. And so she bailed him out under one condition, and that was that we incorporate. And we have a board of directors, and you'll be on the board of directors, but you won't be calling the shots. Wow. So <laughs> they incorporated his name. What year did they? What, what year was that when they incorporated? It would have been in the 20s. Well, no, no, it would have been later than that. It would have been in the 30s because it was during the Depression. Yeah, so then it was not long. I mean, he died in 39. So basically later in his life, she was smart enough to... And what did incorporating, what what did that do for her? How was that different than what they were doing before? Well, basically it took took it out of his personal control and put it in the control of of a board of directors. Yeah, so he had to live up to the... Or he had to, yeah, (laughs) talk to the board. So, wow. And then what's left from that? So you had this... Dolly, who is obviously without her, who knows where Zane Gray, you know, ends up, right? Um, now, what it, where does it go from there? So Zane Gray dies in 39. What happens to the Zane Gray family and all that stuff? Are there still people around connected? Oh, yeah. I, I was involved in providing um, input on a Rise of the Purple Sage opera that was produced here in um, Arizona. And I contacted his family members from all over the world. They came from as far as Japan to attend. So that was, that was pretty exciting. Great event because the uh, producers, the director actually, and composer uh, talked to the people before. They said, so how many of you have never been to an opera? And about half the people stood up and they all had on cowboy hats. And they said, now, how many of you have never read a Zangre novel? And the other half of the people stood up. And by the end, it was all a big standing ovation. So it was an exciting thing. Zangray had several unpublished novels at the time that he died. So Dolly negotiated a, a contract with Harper's Brothers. And then a lot of the people went, read these black, tan, and blue books uh, that were the, sold in magazines uh, called the Walter Blacks. And she noticed, they published new Zangray works until, I believe, 1961. 1961. And then... And then there's still like who's the biggest connection to the family? Or there's just tons of people that are. Is there is there some people that are still out there in the family? You know, generations later that are still active. They're members of our society. Yes, that, that they are. Romer, the son, Romer's wife is still very active. Beth Gray, she lives in Connecticut. They're very pleased with what we're doing to sustain his uh, 
Yes, Zane's name. That's right. So Romer, so Zane's son, Romer, uh, Beth, was his wife, and she's still alive. Yes. And then uh, Lauren, his other son's family, is still alive. So we communicate. They're members as well. So they're, uh, and we run into people that I mentioned that that his fam his early family were the Zanes. Well, we have some Zanes in there. We also ran into a family that that does um, mountain lion hunts and other big game hunts down in along the Grand Canyon, who were families of one of uh, Zane Grace's friends. And they're very involved too. They they actually they market their uh, books to their people that visit with them. Nice, yeah. This is really cool. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are doing a great job keeping this rolling with Zane. Um, I've got you know one other question here. I was thinking about, and I don't know if you know this story, but he caught this eight hundred pound great white back in I can't I think later in his sixties, and it seems to me like maybe that fish. It was such a fight that it kind of led to him his him dying. Is that do you know much about that story? Those those yeah, last yeah, I fish. Yeah, I do. He shouldn't have gone fishing. What, what was the deal? What was he? What was his ailment? Well, Zane Gray had had a stroke on the Yumpco River. He couldn't oh. write. He he could barely even talk for a couple of years, and um and he wasn't doing very well. And he was morose because he couldn't go fishing. He actually started setting up a um a thing on his roof where he could hook up a deep fishing rod, deep sea fishing rod with a weight on the other end, and he could practice pulling in the rod so he could get in shape to go fishing again. Well, they didn't have much money by then, but they were able to negotiate with um, Australia to bring him over and fish in Australia and do the shark fishing. Well, they went over there, and he was having heart problems ringing in his ears they they knew that he was struggling and they encouraged him to not do the shark fishing but to start with he had a young lady with him so he wanted to impress her but um so they went fishing he caught that fish and it wasn't that long after he came back that he passed right he probably he probably knew you know maybe you know it and uh, you know i go back to hemingway you know the end of his life he um Hemingway actually committed suicide, you know, towards the end. And partly that was because he dealt with the same things, I think, right? He had depression and, and he, at a certain point, couldn't write anymore. You know what I mean? Like that was Hemingway and he knew it. And uh, it wasn't long he committed suicide with, a, I think, a shotgun or something, right? Uh, maybe it was the same way as Zane. Like he knew, did you think it was, there might be something similar there where he wanted to go down like fighting, fighting the fish? Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure he did. By the way, talking about other writers... The writer that's most comparable to Zane Gray is Edgar Rice Burroughs with Tarzan and John Carter of Mars. Oh, right. And there's a site called the Zane Gray Tribute site, if you type that in, that a fan of um, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Zane Gray put together that's a wonderful resource. lists all of okay. his magazine articles, all kinds of information. We refer to that all the time. Okay, yeah. Bill, Bill Hillman's Zane Gray Tribute site. Yeah, he was an old uh, entertainer. He and his wife were old uh, entertainers. Yeah, that's right. Zane Gray, 1872 to 1939, was the best-selling author over 85 books, which have sold well over 100 million copies worldwide. Most of these books drew upon the American Old West or the great outdoors for inspiration. This is cool. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is what I wanted to get out of this today. How, how does this feel for you, Ed? Have we, do you think we've done a decent job on this podcast to share a little bit of, of what Zane was all about? Oh, I think so. Almost, almost everything. You know, mention books again real quickly. Yeah. Um, the other thing is coming out more recently, and we've published some, is that, uh, for example, Brigham Young University has an archive of uh, thousands of Zane Gray documents. And we have found old manuscripts there that were different from what was published. Zane Gray was heavily edited. He wanted to be a little sexier, a little more explicit and a little more violent than the publishers would uh, would allow. So we now there have now been people that have published the original versions of the manuscripts, and we're finding more of them all the time. Handwritten documents. Wow. So cool. Well, it's been great, Ed. Um, you know, like we said at the start, we'll send everybody. we got tons of resources, which has been great, and the Zane Gray West Society is a great place they can connect with you. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the time today. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and, and hopefully we'll send a few new members to your, uh, to your community and, uh, and we'll look ahead and hopefully talk to you down the line as well. Well, we'd welcome you and them. Thank you. There it is. 
you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash 489 right now, 489. You can do that right now. Get some of the show notes. Uh, check out these books. Maybe we'll have some clips. I know we're going to have some movie clips here. Take a look at what Zane Gray, what these movies look like uh, right now. Reminder, if you get a chance, you can check out Instagram at wetflyswing. Follow us over there and you support this podcast and get a chance to stay connected. Have a better connection with the podcast. Before we get out of here, let's give a quick listener shout out to Ryan Rowe. Ryan said, hey, Dave, looking forward to future podcasts. I'm in California, specifically on the Eastern Sierra and the June Lake Loop with a plethora of fishing opportunity up here, ranging from still water to river and creeks. There are an abundance of trout species to target. We range from shore to tubes and drift boats, albeit the snowbelt has been limiting most to lake fishing. Uh, my favorite species to target is the elusive and high altitude Oncorhynchus micus agua bonita. I think I got that. Oncorhynchus micus agua bonita, or the golden trout. Such fire and beauty, and boy, are they feisty. Tight lines, Ryan. Ryan, uh, I love it, man. That is a great, uh, great shout out. That is a great email to get. I appreciate you for taking the time to send that amazing re- uh, email. I hope that I can get to some golden trout someday. Um, I hope I can make it down to your neck of the woods and uh, connect with you in person. Uh, if you want to get a shout out like Ryan did here, you can send me an email anytime. Dave at wetflyswing.com. Would love to hear from you. If you haven't checked in with me, it's the best way to stay in touch. Um, and I respond to uh, every one of those and I would love to see that right now if you've got one minute maybe one minute or two minutes uh, of your time to do that check in right now I'm not going to waste any more of your time and I am going to let you get out of here right now and uh, and I love it that you had a chance to stick with us today and uh, and join the uh, join the crew join the team sit down and enjoy this podcast uh, appreciate you and, uh, and I hope to connect with you and, uh, and I hope you are having a great evening, great morning or great afternoon, wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping in today and checking out the podcast. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.